uh, what we're going to do is what we do every Sunday. Before we jump into the passage and then the sermon, we're, we're going to talk to our young ones, let y'all know what this passage is going to be about. So, uh, this kids, this Advent season, we've been talking about light and dark, right? Okay, so let me tell you about a dark moment in my family. Uh, this is a true story. Uh, you may have heard this before, but this is, this is the best story I've got about this. Uh, okay, so this is about 10 years ago. Peyton, uh, when he was little, itty-bitty, just four years old, we were out to dinner uh, with the family, and we were eating dinner outside, and so we've got our kids there, and other families have their kids, and the kids are all running around having fun. You know, it's a relaxed spot. And then uh, all of a sudden, we see Peyton, little four-year-old Peyton, walk up to this other table with all these adults, just adults at the table, and he walks up to this table, and he takes one of their drinks, and he drinks it. Uh, and, and then he kind of scampers off. We kind of notice him, kind of laugh a little bit, and uh, like, Peyton, don't do that. And then uh, a couple, about a minute later, he goes back over, and the two dads, he stands there between the two dads, looks at them, and then takes his hand, puts it on the back of their heads, and pushes both of their heads. And we jump up and we run over. You know, I'm like, Peyton, no, what are you, you know, little four-year-old Peyton, what are you doing? No, 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 no. need to say you're sorry. And, you know, he says he's sorry. And then I get Peyton alone a little later. And I'm like, Peyton, what, what were you doing? Like, why did you do that? Why did you push those dads? And Peyton being Peyton, he, he stopped and he thought about it. And then he said, because my heart wants to beat somebody up. Four-year-old Peyton, and Peyton is like the night, always has been, still is like one of the nicest people I know. And then like at another time, Peyton was like a little older, maybe he was like six at this point, and he's doing some more self-reflection, and he's like, I just got darkness in my heart. Peyton, yeah, okay, but that is, like that, that stuff, like there's darkness in all of our hearts. That thing that we call sin, it's in all of us. It may not look just like you may not go around pushing uh, dads around. It might look different, but we all have that thing, kids, in our hearts called sin. We've got this darkness in us ever since we were itty-bitty. And even after we believe in Jesus, there's still that stuff of sin in us. Here's my question to you all. What is not going to fix that sin and that darkness in us? What is not going to fix it? What do you think? It's like a big open-ended question, so there's probably no wrong bad answers. But what's not going to fix it? Grace. Sinning more. <laughs> that is so good. You know what? That is so good because some people think that. That's right. Sinning more doesn't help. What else does not help? How about that? What's the opposite of sinning a lot? The opposite would be Obeying a lot. Charlie, thank you. Okay, obeying a lot, following all the rules, being as good as you can be, is that going to fix the sin in your heart? No. No. Resounding no. And that is the right answer. No, that is not. Okay, so what is going to fix the darkness in your heart? What's the only... God, we also call him Jesus. Jesus, and like y'all, Jesus is the light that really is the only thing that can fix the darkness, beat the darkness in your heart. Now, here's, here's the last question to you. Y'all think about this, because we usually don't think about this. Jesus comes to beat the darkness. Who has darkness in them? So how does Jesus come and beat the darkness in you without beating you? 
Have you all thought about that? Like if you're the problem and Jesus comes to beat the problem, how does he beat the darkness in you without beating you? It's the cross. Sanders, thank you. It's the cross. Like Jesus comes and he takes your darkness on him on the cross to beat your darkness and he does that to save you. He comes to judge the darkness and the way he saves you judging the darkness is he takes your judgment for you. And here's what this doesn't mean, what Grace just said. That does not mean, oh, great, he's beat the darkness. I can go sin and do whatever I want now. No, doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean what it means is you need Jesus at the beginning of this thing where you come to faith, right? Like, oh, I need Jesus to become a Christian. But then we think, now I've got it, and I can just begin. You need Jesus at the beginning of your life of faith, and you need Jesus all throughout your life of faith. This is what we're going to be talking about today. Is you don't need Jesus just one time to forgive all your sins. You need Jesus to be the light in your life every single day. And even if it feels like, man, the world is dark and there's still darkness in me, you've got to believe that Jesus is still at work in you, beating that darkness, growing that light in you to shine out into the world. Even if it doesn't feel like it, it really is true. We're going to be looking at that today, that we need Jesus for every day. Uh, we're in this season of Advent, which means arrival, means this, this thing where uh, we're looking at Jesus' first arrival as we await his second arrival. And he is coming back. So we're spending our Advent series in season in Isaiah 9. It's uh, the, the whole Advent season, Isaiah 9. It's an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus' Advent, and it describes it as the dawning of a great light that will dispel the darkness of the world. In that first Advent Sunday, we talked about uh, that this great light coming is a child. And what does that mean, that the light is a child? And then last Sunday, we talked about the light of this child being the light of truth. And spoiler, this Sunday, we're talking about the, the light being the light of power. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Isaiah 9 is an Old Testament prophecy, and it's about Jesus. And Jesus arrives 700 years after this prophecy, which means for us this prophecy is 2,700 years old. Uh, and 2,700 years ago, when Isaiah gives this prophecy, God's kingdom of Israel was in a very, very, very dark place. 
At that point, Israel had been split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, what they called Israel, sometimes Ephraim in the north, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is run by a terrible king. That king has forsaken God, uh, and he's led his people in idolatrous worship. And now he wants the southern kingdom of Judah to join in an alliance with him and with the pagan kingdom of Syria in order to go to war against the mighty pagan empire of Assyria. So the king of Judah refuses, and it's not because he's like, it's this thing where he's feigning faithfulness to God, but it's not because he's faithful to God. Uh, it's, uh, he refuses to join in this alliance because he's actually made a secret pact with Assyria. And that's because the king of Judah is also a terrible king. He's a terrible king, and he also leads the southern kingdom in idolatry. So it's a very, very dark time for the Old Testament people of God. Enter Isaiah, the prophet, who comes in all of this darkness with a prophecy about a great light that will dispel the darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Then Isaiah says, that light is a child. And it's so certain that this child of light will overcome the darkness of evil and suffering that all of God's people can start rejoicing right now. And, I, and then Isaiah says, y'all, it's going to be like Midian. Verse 4, this light's victory over darkness is as certain as the light's victory was on the day of Midian. And we don't immediately get that il illustration, uh, uh, that Midian illustration, but the original hearers of this prophecy and even those who knew this prophecy at the time of Jesus' arrival, 700 years later, they get Isaiah's illustration of how powerful this child of light is. Think Midian. Right? Midian, was, Midian was an old enemy of Israel uh, when Israel first became a kingdom. And one of the first rulers of Israel, these guys that they called judges, uh, one of those first rulers was a man named Gideon. Gideon and his army of 32,000 Israelites, they prepare for war against the Midian army of 135,000. So 32,000 versus 135,000. They're outnumbered only four to one. Uh, bad odds, but it's actually not totally undoable. So, and God knows what's going to happen if he gives the Midianites over to the army of 32,000 Israelites, Israel is going to walk away from that battle thinking, we just did that. We just pulled that off. You know, swagger off, pat each other on the back, thinking they're the reason they won. They're that awesome. So God comes to Gideon and says, okay, you've got too many soldiers. Tell everyone who's scared to go home. So Gideon does. 22,000 soldiers go home because they're scared, which means they got 10,000 remaining. And God comes and says, yeah, that's still too many. Even if 10,000 Israelites miraculously beat 135,000 Midianites, Israel is still going to walk away thinking it was all them. So God dwindles the army of Israel down to just 300 men. And the point is not, wow, what, look at what a small elite core can do. It's, the elite core is only elite because they believe it's not about them, that this is totally a God thing if they win. So Gideon and his 300 men, they get ready for battle, except 
they, ha- they head out armed with torches and jars and trumpets, which is kind of like that thing of like, it feels like <laughs> that dream, you show up to school not wearing anything, uh, like they're bringing a knife to a gunfight, like they're just totally unprepared, but this is all intentional. They get their stuff, and they go, and they attack at midnight. They come to the Midianite camp in the middle of the changing of the guard at midnight. So the changing of the guard is when a third of the army shows up to stand watch. And the third of the army that's been standing watch, they start heading back to their tents to go to sleep, while the other third of the army is fast asleep. Okay, that's when, that's when Gideon attacks. All of a sudden, in the middle of the watch, changing of the guard, there's this awful jarring sound of 300 jars smashing. And then the pitch dark is lit up by 300 torches. And then there's this deafening sound of 300 trumpets blasting. And then the 300 Israelite soldiers, they scream, they they let out this war cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And when those sleeping Midianites are suddenly jolted awake, they rush out of their tents, they're totally disoriented, they're freaked out by the sound, and they're freaked out by the fire, and and they, they see in their camp, they see these armed men walking towards them, and they don't realize in all of the confusion that it's the changing of the guard, it's their own men. God uses Gideon and his 300 men to induce this panic in the Midianite camp, and the Midianites end up slaughtering each other. Now, why did this work? Well, God had revealed to Gideon that Midian was actually terrified, terrified of Israel because they were terrified of Israel's God. They had heard about this God. They had heard stories of what this Israelite God had done to Egypt. They had heard uh, of, of Gideon uh, uh, they'd heard of what God had, had done to Egypt, bringing them out, uh, uh, walking them through the, 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 the wilderness. So uh, this thing of Gideon and his 300 soldiers smashing jars, igniting torches, blasting trumpets, they're playing on the Midianites' fear. Because the Midianites have heard of this God who is a giant pillar of fire, big enough to envelop an entire mountain, which is what he did at Mount Sinai. That, that this, this, this pillar of fire uh, is terrible enough. His presence thunders and it shakes mountains. Gideon is providing them a visual aid of the reality that the God of Israel, this great, fiery, powerful light is present and the Midianites are in big, big trouble. And the Midianites go from total silence and peaceful darkness to this terrible sight and sound. And they wake up from their nightmares to see that the nightmare is like, it's true, it's real. So God shows up and then he throws Midian into a panic and they all kill each other. Okay, that's what Isaiah, Isaiah's like. This is gonna, like, we're in the darkness right now. It's going to be like Midian, y'all. Like, he says to the southern kingdom, shrouded in darkness, surrounded by powerful enemies on all sides, this news that God's people can rejoice because God's light will come and save them again, as in the day of Midian. Only better. On the day of Midian, the Israelites yelled a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, but they were holding trumpets and torches. Like, who had the swords? The Midianites. 
Israel didn't raise a single sword. Isaiah builds on that in the next verse where he says, as in the day of Midian, and then he says, verse 5, this time we're not even going to need 300 warriors. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Like this great victory of light over the darkness of evil will not require our strength. We won't need a warrior's boot. We won't need armor. We won't even need trumpets. Melt them all down. Burn them up. Someone else is going to do the fighting for you. And the question is, who? Verse 6, he keeps going. For to us, a child is born. This child of light, he's the light that will overcome the darkness. And let's just be really clear about like this darkness when this prophecy is fulfilled, that, that he comes to dispel the darkness, we know what's happening at the time of the birth of Jesus. There is violence, there is injustice, there's abuse of power, there's homelessness, there's refugees fleeing oppression, there are families being ripped apart, there's bottomless grief, which sounds like our day too. I mean, that's today. And... Uh, keep getting clear about this darkness. Uh, this darkness is never just out there. Let me ask you, have you, ever, have you ever attempted to repay evil for evil? Have you ever been tempted to withhold love and good deeds from somebody, from somebody you love or from an enemy? I mean, have you ever been tempted to ignore God? Have you ever ignored God and what he has asked you to do and done the exact opposite? Have you ever gotten angry and been cruel to someone? Have you ever lusted for someone that's not yours? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever slandered someone or a group of people? Have you ever found yourself filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness? Have, have you ever hated God? Have you ever been haughty or boastful? Have you ever, and this is for everyone, have you ever disobeyed your parents? Thank you. Have you ever been foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless? Have you ever turned away from the suffering, uh, from the suffering of a neighbor? Have you ever refused to rejoice with a neighbor? The darkness is in here because the darkness is in here. And it's in you. The darkness of evil and sin, it is in each of this, in each of us, and that is why there is darkness out in the world. And we need the light to drive it out. But think about this light in the darkness because there are different kinds of light. You know, there's, the, there's a difference between a flashlight and a fire. A flashlight, it focuses all of its light and it emits it in one direction in the dark. Uh, it can be super, super helpful. But think about it. While you're holding the flashlight, you're still in the dark. And things and people can hide right next to that flashlight in the dark, which makes for all these great jump scares and, you know, horror movies and stuff. Like, okay, so you can hide even with a flashlight, lighting up the darkness. Uh, but think about a fire. You can't hide near a big fire because a big fire lights up everything around it indiscriminately. 
It lights up everything, and it lights up you, including you. But even with a big fire, think about this, even with that ball of fire in the sky with the sun, there's still darkness. So what light is so powerful to overcome and dispel all darkness? And if there was such a light, what child could possess such a powerful light? Isaiah answers that. He doesn't leave us in the dark. Isaiah answers that, and he says, the name of this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Though we could do the sermon on each of those, but those are all names for God. Mighty God is the, the spoiler right there. Uh, to overcome the darkness of the world, we're not going to need an army of swords because this child of light to come is God himself, and the light that he brings is the light of himself. It is the light of God. So God is coming to be born into the world as a child of light? Yes. And it's that incarnation stuff that we, we celebrate at this time of year, the birth of, of Jesus, who is the God-man. Uh, the incarnation of God becoming man, it is a riddle. But the question with the incarnation is not so much how. How does God do that? It's why. Why did God bother doing this? The Bible says that, you know, the Bible says that God reigns in heaven, dwelling in the light of his own glory. He doesn't need us. He doesn't, you know, if you don't like this, sorry, not sorry. He does not need us any more than he needs the angels who worship him constantly. He delights fully in himself, the triune God. It's that thing, the Trinity, one God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In himself, there is a fullness of love and joy and fellowship which we cannot add to or take away from. God is not in our darkness, and he's not up in heaven suffering because we're down here suffering. If God in heaven suffers because we suffer, then God coming to save us is just as much, if not more, about God saving himself from his suffering as it is about saving us from our suffering. God does not need us to be okay for him to avoid suffering. So that's an amazing thing. God, who's not in our darkness, gets involved in our darkness. But, but still, still that thing of, wait, wait, so wait, why come into the dark? And it's way too, we just jump to this thing. It's, too, it's just assumed that God coming into the dark for us is a good thing for us. We've got, to rem we've got to remember we're part of the darkness. There is darkness in us. And if darkness is going to be dispelled by the light of God, if the evil of darkness deserves judgment, and if we've got darkness in us, and our sin and our evil deserve judgment... How is God going to come in light and not destroy us who are dark? Because what God owes us is the light of his fiery and just wrath. 
in saving us from the darkness, he has to save us from himself too because that darkness is in us. So why does he come into the dark? That, the incarnation, then the incarnation is all the more amazing because God who's not in our darkness gets involved in our darkness in order to take on himself our darkness and the judgment that our darkness deserves. As in, you cannot answer the riddle of the why of the incarnation if you divorce the beginning of Jesus' life from the end of his life. The child of light, who is God, is born to die for us. If God is going to save a dark people, the Son of God had to become a man to die to take on that darkness, because apart from the incarnation, the Son of God could not die. The Son of God in the incarnation of being born a child into the darkness, he laid aside his immunity to suffering in order to suffer for you, in order to take ultimate suffering for you. Is that thing of like, we want, we want our God to know what we're going through. We want him to, to be able to identify with us. Yes, but Jesus did not suffer simply to identify with us. He did it to rescue us. We need someone to do more than just feel our darkness. We need someone to triumph over our darkness by conquering all that causes the darkness, sin and evil. The Son of God does that. And it begins with the incarnation, and it ends with his death on the cross for us. That's the power. That's the power of the light of Jesus. And the so what for you is that you need to embrace a faith of weakness. And I know that sounds totally at odds. Wait, so, wait. The, the power. That's the power of the light of Jesus to overcome the darkness. And the so what for you and me is you need to embrace a faith of weakness. Because your standing before God as a Christian has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your goodness or your talents. And we get this like when we first become Christians. Like, like okay, yeah, you have to believe. You got to believe there's nothing good in you. Okay, there's nothing worthy in me that makes God love me and forgive me. Like When you become a Christian, you come boasting in your weakness. It's all Jesus. Jesus has saved me. Okay, but then, then when it comes to changing and living the Christian life, we make, we make the mistake of thinking, well, that's all on me and what I do and my good works, my goodness and my talents and my gifts. And we go down that road, we start to boast in ourselves. And so there are some in the church who say things like, well, I'm, I'm so glad I'm so disciplined. I'm, I'm so glad I know my Bible so well. I'm so glad I'm obedient. I'm so glad I'm, I'm faithful and, and a servant, using my gifts to bless God's church and the world. We really want to be the kind of person in the church that says, apart from God's grace, I might be the worst one here. I probably am the worst one here. That apart from the light of Jesus, all of my skills, all of my works, all of my goodness, apart from Jesus, is all darkness. We want to be the kind of person that says, I need Jesus' power at work in me still, today and tomorrow and the next day. I need the power of Jesus at work in me every day or I'm in big, big trouble. 
You don't start with Jesus and then it's on to you. You start with Jesus and you need Jesus for every day after that. There is still darkness in us, but it doesn't rule over us anymore. Jesus does. The power of Jesus' light has set us free, but there will be darkness in us until Jesus comes back. And the power of Jesus' light means right now, today, and tomorrow, until he comes back, it means you embrace a faith of weakness until he comes again, that we are totally reliant upon the power of his light in us every day to change and to live this life. And there, here's the thing, uh, it's not just you. It's not just a, like the so what thing. It's not, there's a so what for you and there's a so what for us. Like we, the church, in light of Jesus's power, we are called to embrace together a faith of weakness. We're called to embrace together uh, a faith of weakness as we press on in a dark world because the world is still dark. And the church to the world will always look weak, always if the church doesn't look insignificant to the world and if it doesn't look powerless, that's, you know, that's a red flag that whatever that thing is, is not the church. When Jesus says to the church, you are the light of the world, he looks at his disciples, he looks at his followers and says, I'm the light of the world and you're the light of the world. He does not mean go make the world a better place culturally and politically and economically and socially. When Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world, he's not saying that he came into the world to make Israel a better place culturally or to make the Roman Empire a better place culturally. After 33 years in the world, he did not leave Israel or Rome a better place culturally. That, and Just an aside, a very important one, that does not mean we downplay our role in the world as good neighbors who bring peace to the city of mankind in our work, in the world. Yes, we do that. But the light that we shine in this dark world, it is the light of Jesus. And we do it with these weak things, prayer and sacraments, worship, with the word of God. The light that we shine in this dark world, it is the light of the gospel. Because the world is in the darkness of sin and it is heading for judgment and condemnation. And the only answer is Jesus. And this world, if we hold on to this, this world, blinded by the dark, will accuse us in that postmodern Nietzschean worldly way. It will accuse us uh, that Christianity is nothing but a power grab. That Christianity in and of itself is a power play. It's an attempt to use God to accrue power over others. Christianity is a way of establishing our moral superiority. The world will say that Christianity is just us justifying ourselves, uh, that we use Christianity uh, as a way of getting control over God and as a way of getting control over other people, that we use Christianity to oppress other people and put ourselves on top. Years ago in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a man walked into a small Amish school and began shooting the children. Uh, and, and we learned later that one of the little girls who was killed offered to die for the rest of them. And she said, kill me and let the rest go. Y'all, Amish kids don't watch television and they don't watch movies. 
So where would a little girl have gotten that idea of dying for her friends? Exactly. And after it was all over, the community of the bereaved families, they not only forgave the man who did it, uh, they took up a collection uh, and they prayed for and they forgave uh, his widow and the children of the man who did it. Now, by anyone's definition, the Amish are fundamentalists and they believe the gospel. But has anyone ever said, could anyone ever say, oh, those fundamentalists with their gospel that leads to oppression? It didn't lead to oppression there. And, and why not? Well, it's because it, it all depends on what the fundamental is. It all depends on what the fundamental is. And the fundamental of the gospel is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. We started the service with uh, this call to worship that the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Jesus is defeating his enemies right now and that looks like beating them with the gospel. Making his enemies his family. It is not, it, we've said this, it is not unchristian it's not an unchristian thing to say that you have enemies. You do. We do. It's a very Christian thing to say. And we are supposed to love them and believe that this gospel of eternal salvation is for our enemies. The church is a light, and we do have power over this dark world. It's the light of the gospel of Jesus. So loved ones, let us overwhelm all of our enemies and continue to overwhelm each other with the light of his love and his grace until Jesus comes again. Let's pray. And please pray with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.